Welcome everybody, this is Tyrell Ventura with Die First Then Quit. Uh, here to talk a little midterm aftermath with my favorite two folks from the Vanguard, Gavin and Zach. Always a pleasure having you guys on. Uh, so yeah, let me get, uh, let's get your first reactions, or probably not your first reactions, by now it's probably the 10th or 12th reactions. Um, <laughs> but what do you guys feel after after last night? So as the results started to trickle in last night, Zach and I were live on our show, keeping track of things. And for the most part, it seemed like it was kind of going as predicted. But as the night went on, it became clear that a lot of the pivotal races that the GOP was really hoping to uh, secure was not going their way. And in fact, there was a lot of unexpected Democrat pickups and retentions of seats that they already had, which I wasn't necessarily expected. And they were a lot less close than I had expected. For example, in Kansas, the state that Zach and I live right by, we're on, in Kansas City on the Missouri side, but we both grew up in Kansas. I was kind of predicting there to be a lot of red momentum there. Obviously, it's a you know deep red state in the middle of the country. Um, but Laura Kelly, the Democrat governor, hung on to control in Kansas. Um, Sharice Davids, the representative from Zach and I's home district, uh, hung on, even though in uh, past midterm elections in red wave kind of years, uh, Republicans have won that district. So, you know, these were a couple bellwethers that I started to see. And I was like, wow, what's, what's going on here? It doesn't look like this red tsunami is materializing quite in the way that even we had predicted, because it looked like that's how it was going to turn out. 538 put the Republicans having a, a majority chance to win the Senate and a 84% chance of winning the House. It looks like the Senate's going to head to a, a, a a runoff in Georgia that will decide the fate of the U.S. Senate. And it looks like the House will also probably go to Republicans, but maybe just by a single House uh, chair or seat. So very, very you know, slim margin, very extremely slim, margin. slim margins compared to what we predicted here at the Vanguard and pretty much everywhere else. Um, so, yeah, definitely, definitely a shocking result and a terrible night for the Republicans. I was having a lot of fun last night monitoring right-wing media uh, as the freakout started and the coping began um, as they tried to make sense of what was going on after hyping themselves up for the last couple of months saying red tsunami incoming, you know, Democrats headed for utter obliteration, all that stuff. Um, that is not how it turned out. At very best, the Republicans just had an average night. At worst, they got totally shellacked, completely embarrassed. Yeah, I think that what this election really kind of, I guess it, it kind of settles this debate, right? We kind of saw it a little bit in the uh, primaries and some of the referendums that we saw, uh, you know, in the most uh, recent election and back in 2020, where even states where you kind of think you would have an idea that this is going to be a conservative electorate, right? Uh, we, we we can look at uh, Kentucky last night with the abortion uh, legislation. We can look at Nebraska's $15 minimum uh, wage. Uh, and again, you know, Kansas recently being a, a red state that uh, Gavin mentioned, you know, reelected a Democratic governor, but then also just a short time ago, uh, you know, made, uh, reaffirmed the constitutional right in Kansas to have uh, an abortion as health care, which a lot of people were surprised by. And I think that what we need to start understanding uh, in the wake of this election is that uh, in the age of the Internet, in the age of the 21st century, uh, we are not binary voters anymore. And also we're not red and blue states anymore, right? Uh, if you look at the makeup and how people are voting, uh, it, it, it's true that some uh, red states might harbor more uh, traditional voters, uh, but they also are going to have their standout of people who are going to draw a line in the sand when it comes to absolute crazy talk from either party, right? Uh, so uh, when the Republicans decide to uh, you know, that uh, they're basically going to uh, run their election. You know, they're trying to make it about the economy uh, in some like weird abstract terms. But really what it was, was it was like, we're going to take away your right to an abortion. We're going to make this a lot about trans kids for some reason, uh, kids in like shitting in litter boxes or whatever the hell they were trying to run with. And, 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 Instead, trying to portray, and then the Democrats didn't do themselves any favors here, right? Uh, they were running on, you know, not January sixth, whatever. Uh, it, it was a, it was a weird hodgepodge. So what did we see? I, I think we just see people coming out and and trying their goddamnedest to vote for the things that actually did matter for them, right? What did matter to them? They did not want to lose the right to have an abortion. They wanted to get a better paycheck at the end of the day. Uh, they didn't really trust any of these politicians to deliver on what. Uh, they they had promised to do this morning. I was looking at the voter participation in Gavin and I's home city of Kansas City. Right. Thirty six percent of eligible voters uh, participated. And that was considered high. So I just think, uh, you know, that's another kind of a benchmark that we need to all be looking at with like uh, how this is being uh, how this is all being decided. These people that are showing up for their races uh, clearly have very specific things in mind, like 
oh, I was showing up to vote for legal pod or, you know, and then I feel like all of the politician races were just kind of uh, of second thought to people. And that is not necessarily how I think we normally look at elections, right? We're always looking at the politicians first and then whatever ballot initiatives second. So my biggest takeaway from tonight was, or last night rather, was, uh, you know, that that might not be the case so much anymore, that we're not going to be looking at, at such binary outcomes. I, yeah, I kind of agree with you guys a lot because it was interesting to see even a state like Missouri pass recreational marijuana last night. Now, Missouri is a deep red state, you know, when you look at it and and for them to kind of step forward and say, no, no, we're going to pass this. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that the voters, it, it, it was interesting because I got this vibe that the just like you said, the voters weren't really voting based on party. I think they were truly one of those weird moments where people were, were voting more on on principles and ideas. And that's what caused this kind of uh, end of this so-called tsunami or or whatever it was supposed to be. Plus, it's like historically, I understand why everyone predicted that, because historically, what, for the last, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 years or so, the midterms of whatever sitting president, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, always seemed to go the other way towards the op opposition party. This one didn't. Kind of a mixed bag. One of the big things that people were talking about was the whole Gen Z vote and where they were going to go. And I think this kind of I think what we're talking about plays to that. I think the youth made a big difference this year. If anything, this 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 midterm to me proved once again, which I don't know why we still get hung up on this. Uh, the polls are wrong. There's no such thing as the great prognosticator that's going to be able to tell us like, oh, well, based on what 538 says or based on what all the polling places said this is what's going to happen because like polls are great but polls are also heavily influenced by how the questions are asked and who and what areas they're asking at the end of the day and i think that this election kind of once again proved that yeah it's not about polls nor is it about celebrity uh you know oz got beat which was which was pretty shocking to i think to a lot of people especially after that you know, after the, the the debate, it wasn't about what Fetterman was saying. I think a lot of times you worry, well, are people going to see, yeah, he had a stroke. Are people going to see his ability in that debate? Do they think that that's somebody who can actually lead and who can do the job if he's suffering from medical malady or things like that? Clearly, people are like, no, no, we want this guy. Right. Yeah, I think that the Oz defeat was probably one of the funniest results of the even just a huge defeat to the elitist uh, kind of the personification of elitism that he represents and also just being a carpetbagger, not even from the state of Pennsylvania. Um, definitely have some issues with Fetterman, but he's a strong populist Democrat, at least if you compare him to the more establishment types like a Chuck Schumer or a Nancy Pelosi. You know, he's a strong union guy, uh, really strong advocate for legal cannabis. Um and he's an aggressive uh, campaigner. You know, he was out there defining the race and defining his opponent from the very, very beginning, which actually I think is something that in Georgia, Raphael Warnock could have done a better job in a similar dynamic between him and another celebrity, Herschel Walker. I felt that Raphael Warnock was a little bit too soft on the guy. He didn't go hard and aggressive enough, whereas, you know, John Fetterman went hard in the paint from the very, very beginning, painting his opponent as an elitist, out-of-touch carpetbagger. And I think that really did help him quite a bit. I mean, I mean, it felt to me like, like uh, uh, Herschel's kid was doing a hardcore yes. job, a way better job of right. going after right. the opponent than, 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 Absolutely than correct. the Democrat candidate did. Yeah. Also, I wanted to briefly talk about what you said about the polling being off again. I have a theory as to why in the last couple elections, the polls have underestimated Republican support by about four to five percentage points in any given state, you know, really uh, giving, you know, more, more percentage to the Democrats than ultimately came to fruition. I think that they, you know, tried to kind of compensate for that by this time overcompensating in the direction of the Republicans instead of the Democrats. So uh, instead, we got a couple of polling misses where they really underestimated Democratic support. Pennsylvania being one of those states, it looks like Fetterman carried that pretty handily, even though the polls had it neck and neck. Same with New Hampshire. It looked like that race was going to be neck and neck for the Senate. Um, but Republican bon, Don Bulldog got absolutely stomped. It wasn't even remotely close in that race. So I think that the polls uh, or the polar pollsters rather um, overcompensated in the direction of the Republicans because they didn't want the same thing to happen. But they may have given them a little bit too much of an edge uh, when in reality, the support was actually more for the Democrats. And I think a, a large part of the reason is ab abortion and the 
fall of Roe v. Wade. You mentioned, Tyrell, that a lot of young voters, a lot of Gen Z voters may have um, swung this election. And I do think that it can't be overstated how important the fall of Roe versus Wade ended up being. This is something that, you know, Gen Z uh, folks have known their entire lives. Um, we've never you know, known a reality where abortion was not legal. And it's a huge, huge shift in the in the currents for that to fall and, and for there to be such a dramatic um, change for and something we've always known, a, a basic human right, something we've always thought was a basic human right, just going away thanks to the Republican policies and their longstanding campaign to or an attack on abortion rights and women's health care. Um, so I don't think it can be overstated how important that was. I honestly kind of underestimated how important that would be because I figured the economy would take precedence. Um, but I knew it was an important issue, of course, and it's a deadly serious issue, but I just worried that the economy and inflation would take precedence in the eyes of your average voter. Um, but I do think that the fall of Roe versus Wade really, really did energize Democratic turnout and especially youth turnout and uh, female turnout for this election, which very, very uh, much so carried some of these Democrat candidates over the edge. Yeah, and and I think that, uh, you know, part of that is, is I saw a great tweet this morning uh, to kind of summarize what, what was going on. And, you know, there was all this talk about like, oh, the working class isn't going to prioritize these issues. The working class cares about the economy. And what I think uh, last night was a referendum on it was what this person observed is that the 18 year old queer kid serving you your Starbucks is the working class. It is not just the truck driver that is commuting across like, no, people like me and Gavin are the Gen Z working class. Like we are out here, you know, we work for our money. We have jobs. We're not this ethereal bunch. And yet, uh, you know, and, and I think that's what that was a huge driving force. And again, uh, not so much that there was massive enthusiasm behind these Democratic candidates, although, again, Fetterman, uh, outside from hammering Fetter uh, or Fetterman hammering Oz for being a carpetbagger, as Gavin mentioned, he also was incredibly online and really in touch with what I imagine the youth vote in Pennsylvania would have been seeking. Uh, not only did he, you know, just relentlessly hammer the guy for the crudite, uh, you know, he served it at his watch party last night. He had Snooky from Jersey Shore uh, leave that hilarious voice voicemail to him about how he was going to get to go home to New Jersey real soon and uh, all these different uh, kind of hilarious things that really kind of took a lot of inspiration. It felt like from the Gravel campaign, those teens that ran Mike Gravel's really savvy uh, online campaign in uh, 2020. So that was that was something that I think uh, should not be understated. The fact that uh, you know, these young people are working class now, right? Like uh, when you look at the Gen Z voting block, uh, one, the as, as a collective, they're just not, at, there's not enough right wing or young people, right? Like as much as Charlie Kirk and like all these guys that, you know, go on the internet and they are young people, they just pander to an older demographic of, of people on YouTube. But the younger generation, while there are some right wingers, by and large, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say this crudely, but it's a dying market that they have to sell themselves to the old people that make up the bulwark of the majority of the Republican party are dying off. And instead we have this new generation of people, uh, that are demanding things like the right to an abortion, like the right to $15, like the right to smoke pot. And all these things are kind of disqualifiers, uh, for the Republican party, right? Uh, this is a generation that is going to demand, uh, rights for, you know, their trans homies, right? Like, you know, uh, that this is just going to be part of the package deal. You were not going to get, uh, you know, the the Gen Z vote. It, you know, it, it, you know it, it's just the times have changed. So you can fear monger, but it's going to cost you. And, and I think that that is the lesson that, you know, is exciting to learn uh, is that, you know, if we're looking at the Zoomer demographic is, is they're not really buying the whole scapegoat narrative. Right. They, they kind of again, we've grown up under. Obama. We've grown up under Trump. We've seen both sides and what they have to offer and how empty that leaves us. Right. We you know, we we all know that the Democrats are not going to bail you out. They're only going to bail out Wall Street. And then the Republicans are going to get in uh, power and they're going to come after your minority friends and they're going to fucking uh, uh, cut taxes for the rich. And, and, and that's an unacceptable bargain. So, again, I just think we're going to see more and more of a of a push for b ballot initiatives uh, and. And uh, less, again, less with the uh, the specific marriage to the politician, because I don't think Gen Z is necessarily like married to the Democratic Party. They're just uh, less odious to them than uh, the Republicans. Yeah, I think I think I, I agree. I think like, look, everybody's going to have their kind of takes of what this means moving forward. And, it, you know, everything can change dramatically in two years, as we as we've seen with this country, because, you know, we the tragedy of the United States and its populace is that, you know, we generally have a sense of history that lasts about 15 seconds. But it, I, to me, I was also, it was interesting to see that 
when you look at like Ohio, right, and and the and the the, the victory of J.D. Vance, who's who's a frightening candidate for the language that he uses, especially about how he wants to maintain power and and how he wants to essentially just eliminate any oppositional party to the except for his own. Like if you if you look at the way the guy talks, that's what it is. And then the Democrats kind of ran Tim Ryan against him, which I'm reading now that there's a lot of people saying that, you know what, Tim Ryan probably lost because he's not, he doesn't practice a real progressive politics. You know, he doesn't push a lot of the issues that, that, that uh, you know, a lot of people are fighting for. He's a very kind of corporate stylized Democrat from what, you know, what people have seen. And they're attributing that to one of the reasons he may have gotten crushed in Ohio the way he did. And I think people have to really wake up to the fact that these issues are important to us, the issues that you and you and Gavin just mentioned, that at the end of the day, people are, are always going to, they're going to vote issue because that issue is going to affect them first, more so than, than the dynamic politician. A dynamic politician is few and far between. You know, let's be real. Like, you, there's not a lot of Jesse Ventura's out there. There's not a lot of Bernie Sanders is out there. There's not a lot of... For all the flack that they get, like the squad member, you know, there's not a lot of those really dynamic types out there who who are have the charisma to back up whatever ideology they believe in, and on the right too, you know. I mean, like, look, I mean, <laughs> seeing Lauren Bobert get kind of crushed was was one of the. I think it's still in contention, but I mean, just seeing that happen was one of those fun parts of this this election series. I wanted to also ask you guys. You know, everybody kind of brought up the economy. You guys did, too. The interesting thing is is how little actual information people have about how the economy works when it comes to inflation and things like that. And that every candidate I saw across the board, a lot of them were trying to run that, oh, I can get in and fix the economy. None of them are going to get in and fix the economy until they actually go after the true perpetrators of why we have inflation, correct? Oh, 100% correct. 100% correct. I think that's actually a big part of the reason why this message wasn't as salient for the Republicans as we might have expected, because while they were pointing out some of these you know, negative economic indicators, talking about inflation and stuff like that, they weren't really providing much in the way of answers themselves or solutions themselves. It's not like these candidates that were pointing out high gas prices or inflation. Or, it's not like they were presenting some great plan to fix it. They were just saying, oh, vote for us and you know, trust us, we'll take care of it. Well, the people have been swindled one too many times. They know that that's not going to happen. Um, and, and you could say that for a variety of issues, right? I, another issue that some people were saying was a, a, a good reason to vote for Republicans was that you know perhaps they wouldn't be continuing to give Zelensky and Ukraine a blank check. If, if something you're concerned about is enriching the defense contractors and the military industrial complex and you don't like the Biden policy um, as it relates to Ukraine and Russia, whatever your opinion on that is, if that's an issue that matters to you. Uh, well, there are a couple of Republicans out here saying, well, you know, if we gain control of the Senate and the House, then we're going to we're going to stop, you know, funneling so much money into this conflict. We're going to try to deescalate, et cetera. And that might be an appealing message for some people. But let me tell you, you have to be an absolute dunce if you believe them. There's never been a Republican House or a Republican Senate that didn't give the defense contractors whatever they wanted. Uh, it, people know that. People know that the Republicans aren't going to get into power and all of a sudden become principled anti-war politicians or activists? Of course not. Of course not. That's ridiculous. So these kind of messages, while they may have been able to point out some of Biden's failures, I don't think they were able to present a very compelling uh, solution or agenda themselves. And I, I think part of the reason why is because they were so hung up on the culture war nonsense, so hung up on the culture war nonsense. I think that, you know, in years past and elections past, if you look at 2016, for example, that it was the Democrats that were really seen as the culture warriors. I think that's one of the big reasons why Trump was able to win in 2016 is because he was able to tap into this frustration people had with the the wokeness and the PC culture and all that stuff and point out, oh, the, you know, these, these petty authoritarian liberals are coming for your free speech rights and they don't want to hear opposing opinions and, you know, they're uh, petty authoritarians and all this stuff. Um, and, and they're talking about uh, uh, culture war issues at the expense of real issues that actually matter to everyday working Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about that, it was clearly uh, uh, a compelling message for a lot of voters. And I do think that a big part of the reason Trump won and you know, some of his uh, ilk one was was for those cultural reasons. But this time around, it seems like now it's the Republicans that are hung up on these kind of quote unquote nonsense cultural issues just from a right wing perspective, making a lot of these races referendums on uh, issues that affect less than one percent of the population. Of course, talking about trans people nonstop, uh, fear mongering and scapegoating the trans community like nobody's business. Even in Missouri here, you know, you, you would turn on the TV and, and see ads for the Republican parties. And the main message of the ad is like, isn't it crazy that these 
you know, transgender high schoolers are competing in sports and like it, it, it this is this is just not issues that affect most people. Um, you're going to get a couple of these kind of super uh uh, partisan culture warriors online to care about that. And I'm sure you can radicalize some people into thinking it's a, a bigger deal than it actually is. Uh, but for the most part, people aren't voting based on transgender healthcare for, you know, minors or, or, or whatever. Like, you know, even if that's an issue that you care about, you're probably not going to vote solely based on that. There are much more important issues facing everyone that are, uh, that the Republicans failed to to adequately message on in lieu of these bullshit nonsense culture war um, issues that they really ginned up at the last minute in hopes that that would increase voter turnout. If anything, I might've put some people off because they just were wearing their bigotry so blatantly on their sleeve. And also it's just a distraction from the issues that I think really would have connected more with average working Americans who aren't so embroiled in the culture war. And just to piggyback on top of that, I think if anybody was actually brought out to the polls because of how disgusting and odious the culture warmongering was by the Republican Party, they were actually vote. They were encouraged to vote for a Democrat to to, you know, put the Republicans off a little bit like I am no simp for uh, the Democratic Party. Right. Like I couldn't bring myself to vote for Trudy Bush Valentine. She's like a fucking aristocrat, like uh, not going to do anything good for the state of Missouri. But down the ballot, I did vote for uh, some of the Democrats because, look, uh, you know, you, you don't want to see the balance. I didn't want to see the balance of the House change. Right. Uh, because you don't know what kind of uh, legislation could be passed. And also, obviously, you know, Joe Biden has veto power. So nothing is going to get passed anyway, which I think is the other elephant in the room. Like how fucking shitty do the Democrats have to be that a victory is just them not getting completely their ass whooped? It's like we all know now that with a 50 50 lock Senate, uh, it's like, you know, the most likely situation. And then like a slim majority for the Republicans, you're not going to get anything to pass during uh, the next two years. Um, but yeah, I think, Gavin, you're 100% right that this was, even though they rhetorically were saying, oh, nobody is talking about the economy, like, oh, gas prices, like, the only thing that they said they were going to do if they got to Congress was, like, make life harder for trans kids and take away your right to an abortion. And obviously, people rejected that. Without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, it, uh, it's it's interesting, too, because I saw someone saying, ooh, with the tight Senate, the way it's going to be, now we're going to get two more years of Joe Manchin being like the deciding vote or, or you know, kind of like running the table again, which is going to be like fucking annoying as hell. But it, it, it plays to a bigger thing that I, I, I've seen a few commentators bring up and a few people talk to me about is that you notice that with, with the parties, especially the the, the top controllers and the and, the, and the, the movers and shakers of each party, they prefer being <laughs> they prefer being on the losing side to a certain degree, especially the Democrats, because the Democrats, yes, it's way easier to fundraise. You don't have to then make decisions that piss off your donors, you know, your big corporate power donors and things like that. Like that, it, it puts the Democrat elite in a really perfect position right now because they're not going to get shit passed that they want, they can blame the Republicans all day long, which means they don't truly have to fight for the issues that we want them to fight for, and then lines up to the next big presidential election in two years. You know, so it's it's very interesting to see the kind of celebratory, like, yay, man, check it out, we're not quite in charge. You know, and seeing them jump up and down over that. Honestly, it's masterful marketing, though, when you think about it, right? Because all what happened was, and, and you know, we followed this, uh, the midterms for, you know, a, a number of months out, right? And after the Roe decision, uh, the polling just went whop, right? And it looked like the Dems were going to crush it. They were going to have the House and the Senate. And then what happened? The media machine did its job and they said, no, 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 this is impossible. Uh, this could never happen. It's actually it's going to be a red wave. And then everybody got convinced that it was going to be a red wave. And so now it actually looks like a titanic achievement that they've barely just lost. And it's like, wow, I can't believe it. Like Joe Biden led us to a greater victory than uh, Obama did. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, no shit. Obama got his ass kicked worse than almost anybody before him in 2010. Like, of course, Joe Biden did a little bit better than that. Uh, and so, again, not that I'm not you know glad that a lot of these like you know shitty republicans lost but i just think it's very interesting and what a, like a masterful marketing and uh uh messaging uh that that they could turn what was really just like a middling performance into something that's like shockingly good for them uh and potentially setting up joe biden to have some actual things to talk about if he decides to get a re-election campaign off the ground speaking of 2024 because that's of course what everybody does now is oh what's going to happen in 2024 it's interesting seeing the the apparent division in the republican party now between like you know ron DeSantis winning huge in florida and then also now him kind of starting to fire shots at donald trump and then donald trump firing shots back at him when really to me it's like oh great two halves of a shit sandwich 
you know, ooh, yeah, let's jump up and down. And because, you know, Ron DeSantis, because you already see kind of corporate media doing like playing this up of like, oh, what a better candidate for the Republicans will be Ron DeSantis. Yeah, this is still a guy who wanted to create his own military force to control the polls. You know, this is still like, he's, he's a younger, slicker version than Donald. I mean, really, at the end of the day, right? Well, it's interesting to see because usually, especially in this kind of uh, populist era that we're in, uh, the, the kind of traditional logic has been that, well, more uh, populist candidates, kind of like the Donald Trumps of the Republican Party, are going to succeed more given the economic um, environment that we're in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually, it was the opposite this time for the GOP. It, it was a it was a swing back in the direction of the establishment Republicans, the folks like Ron DeSantis. Um, and I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. For one, I think that the Trump movement, the Make America Great Again, America First crowd, has really lost the plot. In 2016, you know, obviously they were crazy, and and a lot of their message was based in bigotry and xenophobia and, and all that stuff. But there were some undeniable issues that they leaned into that really did resonate with your average working class, you know, middle of America, Rust Belt kind of voters. One of them especially being the issue of outsourcing and trade deals. Trump constantly was hammering Hillary Clinton and the Democrats for outsourcing all these jobs, uh, for, you know, selling off our um, goods to China and making these dirty deals with foreign countries that were really just screwing over the American people. And again, whatever you think about Trump and his ilk, that was a, a, a message that really resonated, especially when you had a just cartoonishly elitist candidate like Hillary Clinton to define in those terms, right? Um, it seems like now the America First movement, the Donald Trump crowd of uh, candidates has kind of leaned away from those more populist, hard-hitting issues that really do speak to the economic devastation in this country. And they've leaned into, as I said, culture war issues, talking about these, you know, ginning up these bogus controversies over transgender people and, and other uh, minorities. Also, um, talking incessantly about the election fraud and how, you know, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, which is honestly something that most people have either moved on from if they did care about it or never cared about in the first place and think is ridiculous and a complete conspiracy theory, which it is. Um, so by substituting the economic populism of the original Trump movement with these bullshit culture war issues and kind of masturbatory claims of election fraud, uh, that also did not resonate with the American people. And now they just look like crazy people. Now they just look like unhinged lunatics. And even normie Republicans are like, you know, maybe these guys actually shouldn't be in control. Like maybe this, like for whatever semblance of democracy we do have left in this country, maybe we shouldn't hand the reins off to these lunatics who deny basic reality and can't come to terms with the fact that Donald Trump lost fair and square in 2020. Um, and that has led to Ron DeSantis, you know, really having a great night last night. I think for the Republican Party, uh, there's no one that had a better night last night than Ron DeSantis. And I'm obviously no fan of Ron DeSantis, but that's just the objective reality, in my opinion. You know, Donald Trump was reported to uh, be preparing an announcement for his presidential campaign on the 14th. And, and, the, and the whole idea was that uh, he was assuming that these midterms were going to go so well in his favor and that all of his endorsed candidates were going to win massively. And it would just be a huge red wave. And uh, Trump, 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 you know, he could go out there and brag about how he carried all of these candidates to victory with his endorsements. Uh, that's not what happened at all. That's not what happened at all. There's a couple Trump candidates that wins. The one, it looks like Carrie Lake, the uh, Trump endorsed gubernatorial candidate in Arizona might squeak it out. But even that race is far too close for comfort and hasn't been called yet. But there's been some huge L's across the board for these America first candidates, whether it was the um, governor in, in uh, Michigan, uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer winning re-election over the Trump endorsed Tudor Dixon or Don Bulldog losing handily in North Carolina or sorry, um, New Hampshire, who was a huge Trump sycophant, big uh, America first kind of guy. We have Blake Masters, another Trump endorsed candidate. It looks like he's going to lose in Arizona. Dr. Oz, of course, someone that Trump endorsed early on and apparently is furious at for losing and blaming his wife even from what I've heard because she apparently was a big Dr. Oz fan who <laughs> convinced Trump to endorse Oz. Um, so he's uh, now blaming her for that bad mistake. But either way, Trump's uh, movement did not do well last night, um, even more so than the Republican Party not doing well. Trump's specific faction of Republicans did not do well. The American people and the Republican Party rejected their lunacy and their claims of election fraud. They rejected 
their you know far right insanity on the issues of on the culture war issues. Um, and, and again, I think that uh, the, the one place where Republicans did do really, really, really well, undeniably, was Florida. And Zach, you said earlier, there's no such thing as blue states and red states. Well, that's not the case in Florida. Florida is solidly red after last night. Ron DeSantis coasted to re-election with over 20 percent of the vote, despite uh, a challenge from former Governor Charlie Crist, who a lot of people actually thought would be a fairly formidable candidate, just got absolutely obliterated. And Republicans completely took control at the other levels of the state as well. So, yeah, great night for DeSantis, bad night for Trump. I actually kind of saw that coming because I have a very good friend who lives in Florida who uh, is in real giving you know giving out like home loans to real estate. And when I went down to visit my friend earlier this year, uh, it was at like this kind of mixer uh, where a lot of the realtors and things like that were there. And so I and they found out what I did, and so they started talking to me about politics and things like that. And this is about maybe a year ago, year two years ago. And all of them were telling me that like when there's they've had a sudden influx of people buying homes from out of state moving into Florida. They said the first time in history they had people asking, well, what is the color of the neighborhood I'm moving into? It is it red or blue? And the predominant thrust was all Republicans buying homes in Florida. They had liked what DeSantis had done during the pandemic and like all of that. And they wanted to live in the state where they can be, quote unquote, free. Right. And so I kind of saw the Florida turn coming because you suddenly had a whole crop of voters move in who all moved there because it's a red state. And I think that's why you saw these huge margins take place in Florida. And I kind of saw that about two years ago or so when I was down there talking with these realtors. That's yeah, that's insane. And Gavin, you're 100 percent right. Uh, there's a reason that Florida is the armpit of America. And it's because it's the last. Well, state it's also funny, too, because but, it's like all these yeah. climate deniers climate change deniers moving to a state that is now going to be directly affected yearly by climate change. Yeah, uh, the city of Miami is going to be completely fucked. I did want to get your guys' perspective on uh, the way that uh, a, a place like Michigan is shaking down, right? Uh, Michigan's always kind of been like a hot-button state, right? Donald Trump was able to swing it over Hillary. I think Joe Biden uh, was able to get it back in 2020. Uh, and now uh, they've had what's been a really uh, interesting kind of a, a voter turnout, whereas the state, House, and Senate uh, have gone overwhelmingly blue. Uh, they now have uh, com they now have control uh, of all uh, you know, uh, like statewide government. But if you look at the results for like the actual House districts, uh, the Republicans have done a, a, almost like a better job. It looks like in this uh, election, or at least a fifty-fifty job of uh, taking um, of taking the you know actual congressional districts. So I'm just wondering, what do you think is going through those voters' heads? Uh, when they're really having uh, a, a very unique structure to their ballot, right? So in in Kansas, uh, something similar happened. Like uh, everybody went red uh, for the state uh, level uh, elections, right? Uh, you know, uh, that's pretty par for the course here. Uh, Jerry Moran won overwhelmingly in re-election, uh, pretty par for the course here. But then Laura Kelly uh, is able to most likely eke out a win. So I'm just wondering, what do you think makes up that demographic? And, and, and do you think that's a, like a newer phenomenon? I think it, I honestly, I think it, I don't have the information in front of me, but I, I, I know in reading a lot, a lot of the, the big wins for Republicans, especially on the East Coast, came a lot from gerrymandering, from the redrawing of district lines on a congressional level, on a, on a, on a federal level, you know, in those seats. So that could be, I don't know where Michigan sits if they had the same issue where suddenly a lot of like maps were being redrawn to like favor Republican districts in certain areas that weren't before where you had more of a back and forth where maybe now on a federal level because they redrew those lines, uh, you're, you're, you know, they're then corralling votes specifically. So this guy always wins in the house or this person always wins over here. Yeah, that's a big, that's a good question, Zach. I would also say that the incumbency bias has a lot to do with that. You know, it's easier to I think it's easier for the Republicans to win some of these races that were uh, that were just like a, a non-incumbent that they were up against. But I, I think that in cases like Laura Kelly, who was reelected governor in Kansas or Sharice Davids from Kansas third district, who was reelected as uh, the representative to Congress, um, the Republicans just didn't have a compelling enough message to overtake that incumbency bias, which the uh, incumbents enjoy traditionally. So, you know, that's the real indicator of 
the red wave, in my opinion. Can they take down these seats, which the Democrats already had? Um, and it looked like, for the most part, no, they couldn't. They, you know, flipped a couple districts here and there. Weirdly, they had some wins in New York where they were able to flip some districts. Um, but for the most part, it seems like the Democrat incumbents were able to hang on. Another example of that would be in Alaska, where the recently elected Democratic um, representative uh, one in uh, in an election about three months ago, but they had to do another election because that was just the end. I forget the specifics of it. But anyway, she massively triumphed over Republican Sarah Palin, who just got destroyed by like over 25 percentage points or something like that. So once again, Democrats hanging on when they have that incumbency bias, Republicans unable to flip those districts necessary or those governorships necessary. Same thing happened in Minnesota, right, with your guys' governor? Yeah, same thing happened. Yeah, Waltz won a second term, uh, which also played out really interesting when you talked about endorsements, because, you know, I was writing the maelstrom of it is that, you know, Trump came out and endorsed his challenger. Uh, and then a day later, my father endorsed Waltz, uh, you know, which was rare for my dad. He doesn't usually endorse a, a Democrat or Republican. He's usually always third party. Uh, and a lot of people were kind of giving Jesse flack for that, you know, for coming out. But Jesse's so anti-Republican right now that he, he that played a huge role into that endorsement because he also endorsed Keith, Keith Ellison too, uh, the the state attorney general. And you know, Jesse's endorsement of Waltz also has a, has an interesting history to it because Waltz actually, when he won initially four years ago, uh, he reached out to my dad without any uh, reason to, just to ask my dad advice. And, and to talk to him about what, you know, being governor and has always had this really good friendly relationship. In fact, he's the first governor uh, in the state of Minnesota to reach out to my dad uh, prior to endorsement and all that. But none of the, whether Republican or Democrat governors in between, none of them ever did. Waltz was the first guy. And I think it, it shows the character of who he is beyond his party affiliation. It's like my dad said, he didn't win a, a primary for the Democrats up here when he ran four years ago to be governor. He won it off of popularity. Like he, you know, they, the Democratic Party had picked their person, but Waltz had beat their guy. And it's like dad says he think Waltz would probably run as an independent if he had the name recognition to do that. And it's probably, you know, indicative of how a lot of uh, normal Americans are feeling. People that are traditionally turned off by Democrats even repulsed by Democrats. Your father, obviously, Jesse Ventura, is not a fan of the Democratic Party. Um, but I do think that the uh, election denial and the crazy conspiratorial direction that a lot of the Republicans have gone in is just that off-putting to normal Americans who, yeah, do care about democracy and do care about norms. And, you know, having some sort of a semblance of these Democratic traditions upheld. Um, it seemed like for a while that the Democrats were leaning too heavily into January 6th and, you know, Trump's going to steal the election and democracy is dying and all that stuff. Even I was critical of that strategy. Um, but we got to give credit where credit is due. It, it may have been a good idea to lean into some of those issues, given just how insane the Republican Party has become since, you know, Trump's election loss and how, how mainstream election denial is within the Republican Party. Again, it's not a kitchen table issue necessarily, um, but shining a spotlight light on that lunacy has proved to be pretty effective. And I think it speaks volumes, the fact that someone like your father, who's usually so um, vehemently anti-duopoly, felt it necessary to come out here and, and throw his support behind the Democrat incumbent and say, no, we can't let this Trump-endorsed lunatic become governor of the state. And even if that means endorsing a, a Democrat candidate who's, you know, probably better than the Republican, but I'm, I'm going to guess not, you know, the most uh, populist progressive ever. Uh, you might, you said he might run as an independent, but still, I, I think that speaks volumes. I also, we were talking about on the show the other day, apparently Ralph Nader of all people came out here and was and suggesting uh, people to vote Democrat in this midterm election. Ralph Nader, uh, like who I would never have predicted to hear Ralph Nader advocating anyone to vote Democrat, but here we are. And, and again, I, I really do think it's just because of how off-putting, how uh, extreme the Republican Party has become, specifically on these issues of uh, election denial and just crazy conspiratorial lunacy that doesn't resonate with the American people. No, that's not an issue that affects your average person. It's just a crazy fantasy, and it distracts from the issues that otherwise could carry the Republicans to victory like they did in 2016. You know, the American people were I guess, happy to accept some of Trump's quirks, to put it lightly, uh, and some of his more um, outlandish personality features, because, again, he was actually running on a somewhat compelling 
economic agenda, talking about outsourcing, talking about uh, bringing the jobs home, um, attacking the elitism of Hillary Clinton. Now it just seems like the Republican Party is so far up their own ass and completely disconnected with any of those actual issues affecting people. So they can point out the inflation, they can point out the economy, but they're not you know, prescribing solutions in the same way. They're not tapping into that populism um, that really motivates people in the Rust Belt, for example, to get out and vote. Yeah. And and if I could just jump right in and add one more thing that uh, I, I'm surprised we haven't talked about until now. Uh, but one of the other things besides, uh, you know, vaguely talking about the economy and gas prices and then obviously the ridiculous culture war. But the other big thing that I think the Republicans really tried to make this election about was crime. They tried to talk about how like crime was taking over every uh, major city. And while it looks like Rick Caruso, uh, you know, has a chance of of taking the election in Los Angeles, I think by and large, that didn't really work out for the Republicans on, on a federal level. There was not, you know, that I, I, as far as I can remember, that was like the other big issue that they were all talking about. You know, oh, these liberal cities that all across the country, the, the liberals just aren't protecting people. Look at New York. They want to have the purge. Uh, I remember all those articles that were coming out because of bail reform in New York City. And it was like crime is legal in New York now, according to the New York Post and all these places. And and and. I, I guess I'm I'm happy and and I, I and I shouldn't even be surprised right because as much as people who are on the like supposedly on the left uh that will kind of go out of their way to invalidate uh you know uh or, or undermine efforts like uh defunding the police and uh police reform kind of as part of their like nimby like I don't want to see any of this I just want to live my life in a, like a clean area where only rich people have rights or whatever the fuck they think about uh and instead I, I think that you know this is another reminder that the American people actually see through that shit right I mean and and it shouldn't be too much of a shock two summers ago we had the greatest single American protest movement the largest of all time uh where people from coast to coast and in all 50 states uh said they wanted a referendum against the police they wanted the police to be defunded and they wanted the way that uh, justice is brought about in this country to be altered. And, and you know, the Republicans tried to run right in the face of that. And, and I think they belly flopped a little bit. If there was, an, if there was one area where, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, they did, you know, try and put their money in their mouth is it's like, we need to be supporting our police more. I'm not sure if that worked out for them in the same way or in the way that they would have wanted outside of the highly, highly financed and very uh, media oriented Rick Caruso, um, uh, Karen Bass race for a mayor in Los Angeles, which unfortunately it does look like the fucking uh, billionaire will win that one. Yeah, because we need more billionaires in politics because that's done so well for us. Uh, you know, I want to ask you this too before we before we wrap up is is we've talked about the, the the crazy of the Republicans, we've talked about the corporate Democrats and all that, but how did the progressives do in your mind uh, in this in the midterms? You know, where 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 do the actual progressive candidates sit, and and how did they fare? Actually, it was a pretty decent night for progressive Democrats. Obviously, John Fetterman, who I have some issues with, always got to add that caveat. You know, I'm not a big fan of his stance on the police, for example. As Zach was just talking about, I think he kind of leaned into that issue a little bit too heavily, afraid of being painted as soft on crime. Um, also not a big fan of his stance on BDS. But that that aside, uh, he's definitely more in the mold of a Bernie Sanders-style Democrat leaning really heavily into union rights, leaning really heavily into a $15 an hour minimum wage, um, economic populism in general, legalizing cannabis, also a staunch um, advocate and supporter of the LGBT community. So, you know, he, he was, in my opinion, one of the most important and interesting races to watch in the entire country uh, for those reasons. He's not a traditional um, Democrat candidate. In fact, he um, triumphed quite handily over a traditional Democratic candidate in Connor Lamb, who he absolutely uh, destroyed in the primaries. Um, so that was a real bellwether for me. And the fact that he was able to carry that into a general election victory, even with the stroke, uh, I think really proves that economic populism and progressivism is a winning issue for um, Democrats, even in a even in a kind of a purple state like Pennsylvania, uh, where the traditional logic would suggest to run a more uh, standard uh, normie Democrat, a more corporate centrist Democrat, someone like Connor Lamb. But no, we saw John Fetterman actually outperform Joe Biden in the state of Pennsylvania by quite a few percentage points. So proof right there, progressivism wins in a state like Pennsylvania, a purple state like Pennsylvania. Um, economic populism wins in a state like that. There's also a couple of other really uh, uh, important wins for progressives in the country at a congressional level. We had Summer Lee also in Pennsylvania who won her election. Um, and she was massively, massively smeared by APAC who went after her for her pro-Palestinian stance and pro-BDS stance. Um, she was able to triumph 
regardless, again, despite the fact that APAC dumped a lot of money into that race, smearing her, trying to defeat her, uh, and falsely calling her anti-Semitic, even though that's not true whatsoever. Um, so Summer Lee's victory in Pennsylvania, also a really, really good thing. Plus, we had a progressive win in Florida. Um Max Maxwell Frost, yeah, who's actually, I believe, going to be the first Gen Z member of Congress at 25 years of age. So that's pretty cool, too. Um, there's a couple other ones, too. Greg Cesar in Texas is a Justice Democrat progressive that won his election in Texas. Um, so it was actually a, a pretty solid night for progressive candidates and obviously for progressive ballot measures as well. We were talking about the victory of uh, legal cannabis here in Missouri. Same thing happened in Maryland. We saw abortion rights prevailing and uh, ballot amendments across the country um, in Kentucky, for example, where of course, Republican politicians won handily. Rand Paul coasted to re-election, et cetera, et cetera. Abortion won by 10 percentage points, much like in Kansas, a state which traditionally embraces Republican politicians. Um, if you isolate these issues from the Democratic Party and just put them on the ballot, they actually prove to be quite popular, which suggests that maybe Democrats should just really lead into those specific issues um, instead of getting mired in some of the other bullshit that drags them down traditionally. But yeah, if you isolate these issues like cannabis, like abortion uh, from from the Democratic Party, which is a toxic brand to a lot of people in the South or the middle of the country, and you just let them vote on those issues, progressivism almost always wins. Again, even in a deep state, deep red state like Missouri, the people are actually a lot more progressive on an issue by issue basis than they're often given credit for. Yeah, and I would say the same is true in Florida. You know, you mentioned Maxwell Frost, who was a Bernie Sanders endorsed uh, candidate. And, and I don't agree with the, uh, the guy 100 percent. I think he kind of uh, ducked some of those uh, criticisms of uh, Palestine in a way that, you know, we mentioned Summer Lee was a lot more fearless about. But look, it's going to be uh, a net benefit for, uh, you know, Zoomers and, uh, you know, the progressive movement to have a guy like Maxwell Frost stacking a vote when it comes to like the common sense thing that we need uh, progressives to do. And um, and I think that just shows that even in, you know, as Gavin, you know, was talking about the probably the last true red state, uh, you know, for a guy like this at, you know, 25 years old to be able to sneak in on a on a actual progressive message. It just shows that none of these states could be written off. And you mentioned, Gavin, if you isolate issues in a place like Missouri or Kentucky away from the Republicans, uh, uh, you know, we saw the same exact thing uh, pan out in uh uh, Florida in uh, 2018, they voted uh, resoundingly for that $15 minimum wage, something that even the Democrats were unprepared to uh, give them at a federal level. And we saw that again uh, in Nebraska, a fairly red state, uh, almost permanently red state. And they voted to give uh, their workers a $15 uh, minimum wage, which is actually going to do, uh, you know, a little, uh, you know, $15 in uh, minimum wage in Los Angeles isn't, you know, that great. But if you're making 15 bucks an hour in Nebraska, you might be able to like fucking survive. So it, it actually is a little bit of a win there. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I would say that as far as the progressive movement is concerned, um, you know, it, it felt like it was it was running on empty. And at least here, you know, you have some real definitive victories that you can look towards. You can say, how did a guy like Maxwell Frost present his message to the voters? What made, you know, uh, John Fetterman so attractive to the people that voted for him, even after, um, you know, uh, he he suffered some massive setbacks, right? I, I was very upset and did not mince my words after he said that he was pro-fracking. Like, there were some things about the guy that I think a lot of progressives would have been deterred by, but in the face of, you know, uh, Dr. Oz as the alternative, the fact that this is a man that will stand up for unions, that will, um, you know, fight for the working class uh, in a tangible way, we hope, uh, you know, that's enough to bring people out. And I would love to see how a guy like John Fetterman or a person running a campaign like John Fetterman with his, you know, stature and, and whatnot would fare in a place like Kentucky or would fare in a place like Florida, um, you know, to just see if you could battle it out. Because the one thing you have to give to John Fetterman is, um, you know, especially pre-stroke, the, the guy just had something about him that made him one of those unique candidates, right? And they're so few and far between, kind of like we were discussing at the beginning of the show. When you look at the fact that you had these people running very progressive campaigns in deeply red states like a Texas, like a Florida, and then winning, that that to me is another bell ringer. Now, will, you know, will, will <laughs> if history follows its normal path, uh, the Democratic Party is definitely not going to use that knowledge and change their ways, uh, but maybe they will. Maybe it's just enough for them to say, oh, wow, these cats won in these deeply red states, or as you said in Pennsylvania, maybe we do need to lean into this more. I think that uh, when you talked about, when we talked about Ohio, uh, like I said, the criticism of that candidate who was, who was, you know, running against JD in Ohio is that he didn't lean into the progressive things that may have gotten to one because JD actually, the, the, cat, the, the Repub Republican one there was a big union guy. 
he's he's batshit crazy in a lot of things, but he did get a majority of union votes that really normally would go Democrat. And that's one of the things I say was to put him over the top, and that, that could be directly attributed to that. For, refused to endorse something common sense like student debt cancellation, which Joe Biden yeah, supported. Yeah, you know, when you got a guy who, who's running like that, uh, he, he's not going to get those votes because they're not going to come out and support him. You know, he's not going to get that. Also, I wanted to quickly, I just realized this happened. It looks like Sean Patrick Maloney, who was the uh, chair of the DCCC, um, just conceded the House election in New York 17 to the Republican candidate, which is one of the races where the Republicans uh, were unex were not expected to win, but again, have just defeated actually a pretty high-ranking congressional Democrat. And if anyone has been paying attention to that race, Progressive Mondaire Jones, who was a Justice Democrat, was basically like evicted from his seat due to the redistricting. And Sean Patrick Maloney uh, inserted himself in there in, in the hopes of of winning re-election in that new district. Um, but he lost to a, a Republican. And, and of course, if the roles had been reversed and Mondaire Jones had remained uh, the nominee and lost, then the message coming out of that race and the Democrat Party agenda would say, oh, well, this is proof that progressives can't win these contested seats. Uh, this is proof that if you put a progressive off, it's going to make the Democratic Party vulnerable in tough elections. Uh, literally, the opposite was proven. The fact that this centrist corporate ghoul like Sean Patrick Maloney, um, who's, who's, a, who's a completely uninspiring Democrat has terrible political judgment. Um, the fact that he lost the seat, which actually might determine the fate of the United States House, and because of his loss, might give the House majority to the Republicans by a single seat. Um, they're not going to take away that message. Like you said, Tyrell, they're not going to come out here and say, well, it looks like running centrist corporate Democrats is actually, you know, political poison. Uh, and we got to lean into the progressivism of a Mondaire Joe. No, of course, they're not going to say that. Um, they only ever blame progressives when that happens to progressives and they lose. Um, even though, as we talked about, there are actually quite a few progressive candidates that um, beat their odds, outperformed polling and won last night. You know what? I always try to maintain a little bit of hope. I always try to maintain that, you know, maybe they'll wake up and smell the fucking coffee one of these days, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Guys, thank you so much, as always, for coming on and giving your two cents on this. Uh, awesome, awesome work today. And I uh, look forward to seeing your shows this week. I'm sure you're going to have lots and lots to talk about. Pleasure as always, Gavin and Zach. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting us on, Tyrell. Really enjoyed breaking down these results with you. And obviously, we're Zach and Gavin from The Vanguard. You guys can find us on YouTube. Just type in The Vanguard. We should pop up. That's where we do most of our content, streaming. Um, always have a good time. So feel free to join us over there. And yeah, it's always a pleasure to chat, man. Really appreciate the invite. Great catching up. And we got to get you back on the show soon as well. Uh, by all means, you know I'm always I'm always there for you guys. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be traveling soon uh, in Mexico for a week or so. So I'm not out of pocket next week, but I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back and ready to ready to rock and roll. And definitely, everybody, you guys got to check out their show. It's great, great stuff on YouTube. Uh, always a pleasure. Zach, Gavin, take care of yourselves.